Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am an overtired, overcaffeinated, but very excited um, beyond um, all that uh, to have a new guest on this podcast, on this fully functional podcast. Um, we have uh, Nancy Rommelman, who is uh, the author of a Substack called Make More Pie. Uh, she also is a co-host of a podcast called Smoke 'em If You Got 'Em. And uh, she is a peripatetic uh, scribe of many things, including uh, the descent of Portland. And so when I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about what a um, crap show Portland has turned into falling from a very low base, um, uh, all of a sudden everyone said, oh, you got to talk to Nancy. Nancy sent me a piece that she had written. Yada yada yada. I said, "Well, let's let's make it happen." So, uh, Nancy Rommelman, thank you for coming on the remnant. Good morning, Jonah, and uh, I'm going to push back a little bit. First of all, thanks for having me. A little bit. I, I think Portland actually had been doing okay for about ten or twelve years, which to me makes the precipitous fall um, more alarming. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, it all depends on where you start from. I was talking about like I, I was the last time I was there was like three or four years ago. And it's worse than it was three or four years ago. Oh, um, so yeah. much worse. But I agree with you. Like, there was a time, and as you wrote, you know, uh, we'll put them in the show notes. You've written a bunch of these things. That, you know, you wrote a piece for a reason about the decline and fall of Portland. But I have all sorts of family in the Pacific Northwest, and some used to live in Portland. Some live just outside in sort of Vancouver and others in Washington State. And um, and so tales of woe about how great, Port how much fun Portland was to live in in the late 90s um, and early 2000s. and decline make me very nostalgic for the similar tales of woe about new york city in the 1970s where i grew up um so what's your tale of how how, how did you get into this and what's the story that you think needs to be told sure so i like you grew up in new york city in the 70s and 80s um wound up in portland in 2004 um my husband had grown up there he said to me it's not the horrible depressing place it was when i grew up there in the 80s Let's go take a look. And he brought me in May. May in Portland is like planet of the plants. They, they indoctrinate you and it's so beautiful and you can afford to buy a house. So that's what we did. So what started happening in like the mid early 2000s, mid aughts, um, it was affordable and it was beautiful. And you had, Portland was singing this siren song that said, you come here and you achieve your achievable dreams. Uh, you can open a coffee shop where the rent is $450 a month. You can live your green idol. You can be, you know, an intellectual, but also cool about it. So it started to attract some pretty interesting people who, to my eye, started to kind of do things in a bit of a punk rock way. Like they weren't fitting themselves into an established template. Portland was like, okay, you want to come here? You want to like make axes or bee balm or vodka? We got all this like <laughs> raw material, dig into it. Let's start building it. Portland had been kind of a provincial town before that, kind of a small, you know, Northwesty town. Start to get kind of cool. You like walking down the street, you start to hear like German and Japanese. It was for a New York City girl, I was like super stoked. And that kind of continued for about 10 years. Then in about 2015, actually, I wrote a piece uh, for the Oregonian in 2010 called Is Portland the New Neverland? Because what started happening is you started getting like tons and tons of young people like, yeah, we're going to come live our dream. And then all of a sudden, like the dream wasn't handed to them. It's like, oh, I can't just like raise chickens and smoke pot and be in a band and like live this beautiful life. No, well, you got to work just like anyplace else. And rent started to go up and jobs became scarce. And I, there started to be a bit of a bitterness that I detected around 2015. And then, of course, 
Trump was the nominee and Portland like lost its mind. And um, it just started to get pretty militantly angry at the fact that maybe a lot of young people, their dreams hadn't come true, but also who were the enemies? Who were the people that were not making it come true, right? So you had obviously Trump, the landlords, the cops, and you just had a really agitated kind of environment, right? And then the pandemic hits and you have hordes and hordes, because Portland was a very young city. It, it was, it skewed very young. You have hordes and hordes of people who are out of work and they can't go to the bars and they can't go to school and they're pent up and then George Floyd is killed and everything just explodes. And you know what happens. Your listeners know what happened. I was on the ground, you know, for many of those hundred plus nights of rage. And all of a sudden, everything that we might say is bad and not really good for the city, like setting fire to many buildings and breaking windows, all of a sudden that was recast as as actually good. We were going to be the really good people that went up against Trump. So what happens? You start to make laws. You start to elect people where bad behavior is either excused or even rewarded. And the city, as you wrote so well in your, what is it called? A pox on Portland? Was that what your piece mm, was called? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. A pox up on Portland. Yeah. Portland it was visibly molested for a very long time and it bears the scars. And, um, and we now have people in power as the most recent piece I wrote, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit, bit about that, who have actually paved the road to the city continuing to decline. So, Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, your timeline is interesting to me because, um, and it sounds like we're around the same age. Of course, you, you look much younger. Um, but uh, um, I remember the first time I went to San Francisco, um, it was probably in the late nineties and I was looking around and I was like, Oh my God, this is what sort of Manhattan would be like if Rudy Giuliani had never happened. Right. It was just like, there were still lots of highly medicated, highly mentally ill people, but there were also still lots of really rich people around. And obviously San Francisco is different because the climate is better and the culture is there and all that kind of thing. But like, there really was this feeling of sort of quality of life crimes were things you didn't enforce and you kind of let go. Um, and it feels a little bit like all of those West coast cities had some of that, you know, um, to one extent or another, but the thing about, and I, and I, this is the thing I've written about before, but like the thing about Portland, Vancouver, Seattle is there has always been this sort of, uh, subculture of able-bodied white men that um have a high degree of tolerance for not working um and a certain amount of anger like you just feel it when like the it wasn't until i started visiting those kinds of places that you would get on a regular basis panhandlers yelling at you for not giving money not giving enough making you know like that really wasn't part of the, the sort of homeless culture or beggar culture in New York city or the East coast. And it's weird how you can sustain that level, that subculture for a long time, so long as you keep it in check. But when you start to have a culture that says these people are all victims and that they have every right to be angry and we're going to rejigger the system to let them express their anger you can no longer sustain the other quality of life stuff that makes a city thrive. Does that I mean, am I, yes. you, you're, that makes sense? You're not only, you're not only saying it's okay, you're, you're rewarding it as a sense. And then this sort of anger um, becomes an identity. I think that's one thing that really has kept Portland from maybe, you know, turning the car around. Portland really developed an identity um, when Trump was up for election in 2015, when he was the nominee, I mean, 20, 2016, they were the people and I'm, you're, the people you're talking about, the angry, young, disenfranchised or underemployed men, but also just like the citizens, they they developed an identity. And then that identity was sort of like codified and made OK. They were kind of like heroic, right? They were going to walk the walk. And the problem is when people realize that, you know, you can't really walk the walk and continue, as you said, to have a good quality of life. Well, how do you how do you 
make that change? Well, you have to make changes in the laws, but you've elected people who are keeping those things that you wanted five years ago in place. And um, people just continue to get angry. And then most people, they don't really want to deal with it at all. They just want to like take their kids to soccer. So you don't have people, I've written this before, that have the stump. They don't like what's going on in Portland necessarily. Whether it's in a bigger picture, as I wrote about women getting murdered, or just having to walk around really, I mean, they decriminalize drugs in Portland. I mean, the you saw this on the street. You explained it in your article. The number of people that are just shooting up and pooping and, and, and lying around in the streets, they just don't want to deal with it. They're, but they're not quite ready to maybe be the first one on their block to say, maybe we made a mistake four years ago. Maybe we need to make changes. What they are doing, as you said earlier, they're moving. They're moving to Vancouver. They're moving to exurbs of Portland. They're getting out of the city proper and saying, we thought we were building some kind of utopia. Well, this is what we got and we're not going to hang around and change it. We're just going to leave. They're losing population for the first time. Yeah, I mean, th- I mean this gets to sort of a sort of a core political philosophy point, which is that, you know, the word utopia literally means no place. It's a neologism of Greek and Latin, whatever. And Thomas More came out with it. And um, um, sort of like Erewhon is nowhere backwards, right? And it's like this idea. And so the problem is, it's not like it's, everyone says, well, what's wrong with being idealistic and shooting for the moon and trying to like get us closer to a utopia? And the problem is, is that the policies that you implement that you think get you closer to a utopia actually make your are so idealistic and so unconnected from reality that they make it impossible to have a good society because you're all geared towards a perfect society. You know, it's like, it reminds me when the mayor of Baltimore a few years ago said, yeah, we're going to give people the space they need for violence or rioting or something like that. And it's like, you can't say things like that and think you're moving closer to a good society. You're actually making a perfect society. You're actually making it just harder to have a good society. But so I want to get to the, 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 politics stuff in a second but why don't you since I, I assume you have it sort of closer to mine like just sort of statistically or or impressionistically you know what is the crime situation in portland because when i walk around it's obvious there are a lot of people on drugs it's obvious there are a lot of people mentally ill there's a obvious sense of target hardening you know um you can just tell you can tell cities in some ways by what the storefronts look like at night and how many pieces of broken glass are missing, you know, and boarded up. And there's all, just an enormous amount of that, what is supposed to be like the business district. So like, what is the crime situation overall in Portland? Because you hear a lot of different things. So the crime, they, for the second year in a row, they beat their um, murder record. But the murders are not crazy in Portland, but you know, if you still, it's not really a number you want to see continuing to trend up. Um, you know, it's interesting when you look at, let's say San Francisco or even New York City, where where I live now, um, you really do see a lot of like personal and property crimes and car thefts. We do have a lot of car thefts in Portland, but I don't think it's so much that crime is going up. Crime is being excused for sure. Um, Mike Schmidt, uh, the DA who I've tried to interview 15 times, he refuses to speak with me. Um, he, he, declined to prosecute 92% of the people who were arrested during the rioting in 2020. So you now start setting a precedent. The DA's office is definitely going softer on crime. But what you have, I think, more than that is you have this visible pox on the city. Downtown never came back. Now, if you allow the city, hello, 92% of the people who were arrested, doing a lot of them doing property crimes downtown, if you don't arrest them, and you let this go on for a hundred nights, what happens to downtown? Downtown dies. And downtown Portland is not looking, I think it's 41% was a number I read last week. It's down 41%. They, they pinged people's cell phones, like compared to 2019 people being downtown. Um, you also have an insane homeless situation where the city is being incredibly supportive of the homeless. Now, this is a very intractable and difficult issue. Nobody wants people in terrible extremis. And you wrote about this in your piece. But I think there are now 700 homeless encampments in Portland. Portland is not a big city. Okay. So I don't know so much that it's crime per se as just the sort of deterioration of the normal fabric of life 
And that is something that you actually see if you're constantly stepping over poop and if you're constantly having people, homeless people camping in front of your house and then yelling at you. There was a story last year where a homeless guy who had been like camping on this woman's, you know, on the sidewalk for so long, he called the cops on her because she was mad that he continued to be there. And the city can't really fix it and also just isn't there. They're trying to maybe do things, two things at once. They want to fix it, but they are also pumping an incredible amount of money into supporting the homeless. So not so much crime as just a, 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 a existential and visual deterioration. And that will have a deleterious effect on your citizenry. And they'll leave or they'll get, angry. And then of course they get accused of um, being part of the problem. You're talking about like, well, we're going to create utopia. Well, whose problem, whose fault is it when it doesn't happen? Maybe we just didn't try hard enough. Right. So real socialism has never been tried. That's right. Um, uh, no, it's, it's, it's funny on the quality of life thing because uh, again, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a, I'm an inveterate people watcher. Um, it's part of, it's one of the benefits of my misanthropy. And, um, uh, and I love walking around cities. I just walk around cities and I look at people and I, I look in stores and I look for weird things. And I particularly like the signage on one of the strip clubs near my hotel that explained that they were going to observe all the COVID protocols. So strippers in masks. Kind of hot. <laughs> you know, for some people kind of, you know, like the dance of a thousand veils, you know, <laughs> yeah. was cool for a reason. But, um, but um, uh, you, it, there's a certain kind of, um, Hardness. I mean, like New Yorkers kind of recognize it in other New Yorkers about like, you know, keep your thousand yard stare. Um, careful how you make eye contact and who you make eye contact with. But it was really interesting. There were people I would watch. I would watch for people getting out of cars because you knew if they had a car, particularly the kind of car that they have, um, you knew they had some means, right? They were, they were there for business. It was, these were work days I was walking around. And um, but two seconds out of the car, you could be forgiven for thinking they were either street people or, or street people adjacent or down on the left. And I think there's this weird thing of, I mean, I know grunge has always been a thing in the Pacific Northwest, not gonna, but there is this sense that people kind of are dressed down, look unsh you know, unkempt in part so that they don't look like the kind of people who are going to be accosted every five feet by people asking them for money. Um, and it's, it's, I, I think it might be just a subliminal thing that that's going on, but like, you just watch people's body language. They're all closed in. They got their hands in their pockets. They're not looking at anybody. And these are people who like have, uh, you know, are of means, but they're like, they're, they're trying to fit in with like the environment down there. And, um, and so I spent a, I spent a big chunk of a day in this cigar shop. Riches. And they were nice guys, I have to say, but it took who ran the place, but you could see how, again, very New York, 1970s, eighties kind of thing. You needed to break through the initial sort of body language and, 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 an attitude of, of a, talking to a stranger who might be trying to get over on me. And, um, and it's, it's just interesting to see that. Cause that's not historically the Portland kind of cheery, you know, uh, sort of classless society kind of outlook. And now you can kind of, at least again, this is all anecdotal and impressionistic, but it was just sort of interesting. Well, I, when I first moved to Portland, I had been living in LA and I'm from New York. I noticed Portlanders are very, they're kind of historically, they're dressed down. Like they were fleece, you know, the, you're not going to worry like your low rises or anything. It just isn't, it's sort of, um, people don't glow and they sort of don't glow on purpose. Um, I think there might be a little more of that now. I think there's something to what you're saying. You know, you go downtown and if you're driving a, I don't know, a Lexus or something, you're, you, there are so many people on the street there that are going to want something from you. So yeah, maybe you're trying to be invisible, but Portland also is very much of a Western town. I, I very much, uh, fences make good neighbors. Don't say anything. If you're not going to say anything nice, it's weird sort of, I actually detected, I could be wrong, kind of a passive aggressive sort of way of dealing. There's a lot of passive aggressive in Minnesota. Nice too. You know, there's, and certainly Southern bless your heart. Nice. So <laughs> there's some of that going all over the place. Um, I just don't even, I mean, 
when you were writing in your piece, um, downtown just, did it feel kind of ghosty to you? Kind of just yeah. really oh, under, sure. under, now, now look, a lot of downtowns are kind of like dead at night. You go to wall street at night and then, you know, it's, it's, it's dead. You can not see anybody for 16 blocks. Um, but Portland really has taken it, uh, in the, in the nuts, I think <laughs> in downtown. No, I think that's right. And, um, you know, and, and they can't, then you have, this was last year it was reported like people, uh, city employees that had been staying home to work, then just basically wrote a letter to the mayor saying, well, we don't want, we don't feel safe going downtown. And he's like, people are like, you got to get your asses back to work. Like you can't, do you want to be part of the solution or part of the problem? You can't leave downtown dead and expect the city to rejuvenate. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how Portland is going to come back when it's got this dynamic tension of trying to fix things, but definitely not trying to fix things. So why don't we talk about, you know, uh, just set the stage a little bit more. Uh, you wrote this uh, excellent piece for the examiner about a murder in Portland. So why don't you just sort of tell people that story? Yeah. So, um, on, uh, August 27th, I believe, um, a woman named Rachel Abraham was, um, well, she'd been beaten and stabbed, but when the coroner determined she'd been beaten and stabbed both before and after she was strangled to death by her um, estranged boyfriend, Muhammad Adan. Now, Muhammad Adan had been, um, he was the father of her two youngest children. She was a mother of six. Um, He had been threatening her since late 2021. Starting in May, he had been arrested numerous times. Um, The including four or five counts of felony strangulation. He held a gun to her head. He stepped on her windpipe and told her she was going to die. Now, he had been arrested, and the DA, who hasn't been too quick to prosecute people, um, did one, one of the first really bad arrests, the five counts of felony strangulation. His office sought a bail of um, $65,000, and the judge said, no, we're going to just let the guy go. We'll let him go with a GPS. So he was. Um, he ripped off the GPS and went back to her home where she was living with the children and attacked her again. Um, he tore off his GPS and when the GPS monitoring system contacted him, he's like, well, I don't know. I was sleeping and someone came in and took it off me. And no, I didn't go to her house. Meanwhile, they know he's at her house. They can see he's at her house. Um, arrest warrant, he's arrested again. He's, he's let out all summer long for no bail. Now, I don't really understand this. I understand that, you know, Portland wants to be a leader in criminal justice reform and and get rid of cash bail. I don't understand how when you have a vi- someone who is committing violence repeatedly on a woman in front of her children um, gets let out. Well, he does. Why? Maybe because Portland judges are elected, not appointed. Maybe they've been telling people what they want. Maybe people are afraid to speak up and say, maybe we need to keep violent criminals in jail. He's black, by the way. So is she. He's a Somali immigrant. She's American. Um, finally, he's arrested again. And they, in the sun, August 20th or 18th, something like that. And he is, finally, somebody imposes, a judge imposes some bail, $20,000 bail, which requires a $2,000 bond. And it's not for the felony strangulation. I think it's for contempt of court. In any case, a bail fund, a private bail fund called the Portland Freedom Fund, which was started, I believe, in 2018, um, it used to have a different mission. It was for like women and people of color and all this, but it changed during the George Floyd days, changed its mission to helping our black, brown, and indigenous neighbors. Um, they're going to pay bail on people that can't afford to pay bail for themselves so that they can be out and, you know, getting themselves a good defense, which is, you know, okay, we get that. Well, they bail them out for $2,000. And while she's there, the woman that's the head of it, um, Amanda Trujillo, she also takes care of her old, uh, move, not moving violation, um, DUI or resisting arrest for driving. She takes care of that for Adon. And a week later, he goes and he kills Abraham. He kills her with three of their, the children in the house, ages seven, four, and two. So now he's in jail for murder. So this happens. I find out about it the next day. Michael Moynihan, actually, um, his column advice, he, he sends me a little bit about it because he knows I'm always writing about Portland. And um, what happens? Well, the DA says, well, <laughs> you know what? We tried. We tried to hold him, but, you know, the, the, the judges didn't hold him. So, you know, what can we do? And then this Portland Freedom Fund, they did an end run. And the Portland Freedom Fund says, well, you know, it, we didn't think it could have been that bad. I mean, if the judge, you know, if the judge didn't impose bail, of course, they didn't do their, their due diligence. The defense attorneys, the, it's a 
it's kind of, Portland doesn't have like public defenders on the payroll. There's like different outfits that do it. They would not answer one question of mine, but they are just like totally against, it should be no cash bail. Nobody took responsibility for this murder. And when I wrote the piece, I had more, well, you will not be surprised to find out that I had people writing into me saying, God, this piece is so incredibly dishonest. I mean, how can you hold this guy? He hadn't been, he hadn't been convicted. So you can't hold him. It's absolutely illegitimate to hold this dude. So my response to them is like, cool. Okay, so what you're telling me is that you're cool with women being murdered in front of their kids because that's the price we need to pay. Got to break some eggs on the road to better criminal justice reform. And they will never back down. So when I said to you, when we started podcasting, Portland has paved the road for this to happen. They have paved the road for Rachel Abraham 36 years old, to be murdered in front of her children. And I will tell you something else. Portland Press, I have a lot of friends in the Portland Press, but they had a record number of murders last year and there were 38 additional murders after she was murdered. You can't spend a whole lot of time on it, but there was not one, after a week, there was not one story about this, about maybe we want to try to reverse engineer and see how this happened. Do we want to unpack this? Do we want to examine it? Do we want to ask some questions? There was only one there was an interview on public radio where they got one of the, I think he's the treasurer of the bail fund, Portland Freedom Fund. And their question, they didn't even mention Rachel Abraham to like 20 questions in, was, so is the bail fund going to continue its mission? Absolutely. Oh, and further, this dude's position is for anybody to be looking at the Portland Freedom Fund to be part of the problem is ludicrous. So that's where Portland is right now. And I'll tell you what, if they don't want to make some changes, they're they're sending the message that they're cool with it, and we're going to see it again. Yeah, no, I, I think it's obvious we're going to see more of it. And you know, and this is a great example of what I was saying earlier about pursuing utopian policies actually makes society worse. It's like I get not wanting to live in a society where anybody's in jail, but the but by just refusing to put people in jail doesn't get rid of the fact that people commit crimes right so it's it's this sort of decriminal it's 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 sort of decriminalization of crime by refusing to cheat, take crime seriously isn't that what we saw when you are setting the federal building on fire for 100 nights it's no longer a crime it's not a crime so when you start with something smaller the definition of what violent crime is of course axiomatically elastic and you want it to be elastic you're saying what, uh, we are making this definition elastic because we're the good people. You see, we're not going to prosecute people that either we feel that they're doing the right thing politically or historically have been oppressed. And we can all agree that, yes, you have to make changes. But I, uh, I would hope that we could agree that stepping on a woman's windpipe and strangling her is a violent crime and that you have to hold this person in jail or at least impose a bail that it's going to make it difficult for him to get out. And Portland does not agree with that. They just do not. Gets me a little crazy. <laughs> you know, no, I, I get it. I get it. And, and the, and the, do you ever read the essay by um, Bonfather Vanities? Uh, uh, Tom Wolf. Tom, yeah. You ever read the Tom Wolf essay, The Great Relearning? No, but we were just on the podcast on the smoke. If you got a podcast, we were just talking about Tom Wolf yesterday and how he's like the best writer about status of any American writer. Yeah, no, he does great. He did great stuff on the status. But he, so he wrote this wonderful essay called The Great Relearning. And he begins telling this story about um, how around the time of the Summer of Love in San Francisco and in in Ashbury, uh, area doctors were confused about all these weird diseases, skin conditions, whatever that were coming up. And they had to end up consulting 18th and 19th century medical textbooks. Um, and because they had, and they had these old names for them, like the drip, the rot, the, this, you know, gross things. And, and the point he was making was that, uh, it turns out that the, the hippies of that era, um, who thought they could reject all bourgeois norms, right? And I get wanting to reject some bourgeois norms. That's fine. That's the spirit of rebellion, young people, yada, yada, yada. But some of those norms in proper Hayekian fashion, whatever, 
exist for good reasons. And one of them is like all these norms about hygiene. Washing. And so, yeah, just simple like washing, right? Like you are not, you're not surrendering to the man and the, the industrial capitalist complex when you wash your hands regularly or you, you wash other parts of your body regularly, right? And, and so these weird diseases, not, not, not the plague or anything, but these weird things like impetigo type infections and whatever were coming back because they threw out, it, it, it's sort of like they threw out the bathwater with the baby. <laughs> um, and, um, and so, uh, and like, I, and one of the things about, you know, New York City is it took New York City, as, as you know, it took a long, New York City a long time to realize that some basic quality of life um, laws need to be observed because if you don't, it snowballs into bigger problems, right? So the whole broken windows thing was, or, you know, turnstile jumpers. It turns out that the people who jump turnstiles, which is a huge problem here in DC now, um, it turned out that in New York, if you, if you stop the people who jump the turnstiles and you looked up to whether they have a warrant or a, Turns out a wildly disproportionate number did because if you're the kind of person who's willing to commit this small quality of life crime, you're probably willing to do other things too. And some, you know, sometimes they didn't have warrants. Anyway, my point is that, that when you stop enforcing any of that stuff, people just keep testing to see how much further they can go. And at some point, I don't know. I mean, you, you know the place better than I do, but I just feel as sort of as a, just a, if I describe the thing in, in the abstract, there are two possibilities. One, simply Portland dies, right? Cities die. It happens. Um, and the other is that there's going to be a crazy right-wing backlash in Oregon. Um, Oregon is this outlier state. It's, it's more white than people realize. 73%, um, I think. Yeah, and white states um, tend to go conservative, have been trending red for all the various reasons. And, like, if you look at at, at, and I'm not saying you're necessarily going to have, you know, it's not going to become The Handmaid's Tale, but um, you're going to get enough pissed off property owners, suburbanites, fam families, you know, with kids who, you know, get nostalgic for the days where you can go to the city parks without seeing dudes dropping a deuce by the swings. And um, you could see there being a a real backlash. Do you think that's possible? Or do you just think there's just something about the culture out there? Cause people forget, you know, Oregon and Washington state there, they still have a lot of conservative red state culture stuff, particularly in the East, you know? Um, and if you depopulate the cities, then all of a sudden <laughs> the, 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 the red district voters have comparatively a lot of power. So I was in um, San Francisco, I think, I'm writing for Reason about the um, Chesa Boudin recall, right? So how did that happen when people say, oh, San Francisco, it's so, it's so liberal and, you know, nothing's going to happen over there. Well, it happened because you had, you had a lot of tech money and you still have also pretty, pretty well-heeled population in San Francisco that had just had it. And you also had, you know, I was also up there for the school board recalls and the, you know, Chinese, especially parents were like, you are not going to keep screwing with our kids' schools. So things turned around. When I moved to Portland, Portland was, Portland and Salem were blue dots in a red sea, right? You had, you know, very liberal in these places. And then the rest of the place was very, very much, very conservative. And that, is I, I think a very interesting and, and worthwhile way to have a state because you had to work together. There's interesting dynamic tension. Well, it's gone completely blue at this point, though it did almost tip the governors, almost tipped red last time. But what you don't have in Portland is what you do have in San Francisco. You don't have a ton of money. You don't have the tech bros. You don't have like a media industry. You don't have a film industry. So what do you have? You've got kind of like middle-class folks, right? And I think the change is, I don't see a big red wave happening. I see people leaving. I see being okay with a certain amount of death to the cities because we still want to fancy ourselves the good people. Like you said, you know, socialism just hasn't been tried. We are seeing Portland move a little bit toward the middle. We've had some really super um, progressive city council people are out. We've got some people in the middle now. But I, 
I see green shoots for Portland because I'm I'm always an optimist. I, I think things will inevitably change. Um, sort of like the New York City school systems are such a wreck right now. And a certain people, just enough people are going to be like, you know what, I'm leaving. We're going to create something new. So we'll make it better. I think it will happen more on an individual level. Hopefully people making things better. I don't think Portland, um, the people in charge, in quotes, um, have the stomach to change it. I think we're going to see, I think we're just going to see, what did you call it? A drip, a drip and a rot. We're going to see a drip and a rot for a while. And it's just going to sort of like meander along. I don't know what is going to create healthy change. Um, It's not going to be with the regime that's in there now. DA Mike Schmidt is going to get reelected. The mayor is probably going to stay in power and he doesn't, he, he backed himself into a corner um, um, during the whole Trump thing. You know, he was the, the, these people that are setting his city on fire because they were against Trump. He's like, well, I'll be for them because I'm against Trump. So I think we're just going to see it kind of carry on for a while. I don't see a seismic change. I I don't see how that's going to happen. I wasn't necessarily saying anytime soon, um, but you know, the, these kinds of, these kinds of transformations are kind of like, Hemingway's bankruptcy thing, you know, they're slow right. for a long time and then they're sudden. <laughs> all at and, once, right? Yeah, all at once. And I, I it just, it seems to me that, um, and the way you do it is, is, is not by the, you know, the existing power structure having an epiphany. It's that you end up just getting some other force coming in and sweeping everybody out. And this is like, this is like a sort of a basic policy point. I, if there were more Republican machines, I would make this point about Republican machine politics, but like there just haven't been many for a long time. You should just, any, any party that has had single power, single party control of any large jurisdiction, you should, as a matter of principle, throw them out every now and then, just because the corruption that comes from one party rule is really, really, really bad. And like one of the things, one of the reasons why Giuliani, who look, I think Giuliani is a day drinking crackpot now. So don't get me wrong. I'm not trip, a part trip, of the <laughs> Giuliani cult, but he did a lot to save New York at the time. And part of it is, yeah, I, some of his policies are like, some, you know, we can argue about others. That's fine. But part of it was just like, he wasn't part of that democratic machine. And so like, you know, the Fulton fish market, they've been trying to get the mob out of that thing since like the 1870s. He did it in a weekend because no one in his administration tipped off the mob and the the unions or whoever and said, hey, we're coming, you know, don't be there. They just all went and they caught everybody. They cleared it out and they moved, you know, they got the mob out of there in a weekend because no one in his team was on the payroll of the people who were always turning a blind eye. And it seems to me you could get a point. And what I don't understand is like, I know a lot of, you know, gay guys in particular, right? Gay men but also some lesbians who are incredibly tough minded people about, you know, sort of very small C conservative or even right wing about all sorts of like stuff about their businesses, their families, their property values, all these kinds of things. And it seems to me that Portland or Seattle or one of these places is so ripe to basically have a socially libertarian law and order person come in and say, Hey, look, we want to be this progressive place. We are welcoming of everybody. We love diversity, but you have no right to take a dump inside of us on a, on the floor of a Starbucks, right? You have no right to break windows. You have no right to, to mug people or use drugs in playgrounds. And I, I just, I am stunned that the powers that be in these places, that the sort of progressive powers that be can spin that as somehow like a crazy right-wing message. But they can apparently because it continues to feed their identity as the good people. You know, I, as I was, when we started talking about this, I saw, you know, with my own eyes, and my husband was part of it. You know, the, the city went from a smallish city to this really thriving place. I mean, it was attracting more young people than like just about any city in the country. You know, you got Portlandia going. It was just, it was really thriving. And I wonder. I mean, God forbid we wait for the government to make changes, right? Portland, I think, does have a little bit of a taint right now, right? People, you know, they don't think Portland anymore. They think riots. They think Antifa. They think now this like crazy, you know, 
the deterioration on the streets. However, it's still, um, if, you, if you care about natural beauty, which a lot of people do, I'm a city girl, so I'm like, whatever, it's nice, but <laughs> um, you still have opportunity there. And what happens? Okay, so downtown prices are depressed. How about we get some people that are like, you know what? I'm going to come in and I'm going to punk rock this again, just like they did in 2000. I'm going to start creating stuff. I'm going to become like, you know, part of the tax base. I'm going to give you some like a great new museum or a theater troupe, or we're going to just create industry. I think that's what makes Portland live again. And maybe they're not even like, even nodding to what happened in 2020 or whatever. They're just going to build something new with energy and with money that you could do in Portland. Portland is ready for that. Portland is ripe for people to move in who are not either A, bitter, or B, sort of like operating on this very kind of adolescent principles, which is what you were talking about a little bit with the drip and the rot. It's like, you know, you got to wash, you got to do basic things. You got to be a grown up. You got to like do your payroll taxes. You got to build stuff. Um, I think Portland could do that. I think it's actually a really good opportunity. So get out there, guys. So do you do you talk to a lot of when you're when you're doing this reporting? Have you talked to a lot of the sort of Antifa types, you know, about their gripes and grievances? So I wrote, I think, a thirty pieces for a reason because I was on the ground reporting, and by far the most popular piece I wrote was they they called it "You're not allowed to film." So the thing about the Antifa folks and the activists is. They, well, they, they have a policy that they don't want to talk to you because, you know, they're all going to be this very mysterious and intimidating force. But the reality is because they can't talk to you. I, I've said it before. It's like all their, 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 like, um, their theories and philosophy and plans, it's like, it's like in a soggy cardboard box. And you throw in one question or one fact and the whole thing just blows out the bottom. I'll give you an example. I was in front of the federal building. It was on fire, the this, the that. This young blonde girl runs up to me screaming, saying, the, the police are killing all our black friends in the street. And I'm like, oh, hi. Um, two, the police have killed two people this year. They've both been white. Don't bother them with the facts. They don't need that. Um, but they, again, so the article, you're not allowed to film, they keep you from reporting. They cover your camera. They stole my phone. They, they try to rough you up. So I definitely did speak to some Antifa people, probably, you know, three dozen over the course of five months of reporting, but mostly they don't want to talk to you because they can't really have much of a conversation with you. If you say like, what are you trying to build? Defund the police. It's like, yeah, okay. I know. I know you're super good at unbuilding things, but what are you trying to build? And so I didn't get a lot of answer to this. I would love it. My DMs are open. I have made so many offers and I have spoken. I've had some long interviews with some Antifa folks, but they're not the most communicative people. Um, so you can't really like really find out what they want to do. And I think part of that is because it's pretty adolescent. They don't have any plans. They know how to unbuild, but they don't know how to build. Well, that's the thing, right? Radic radicalism and conservatism are the only two political systems that have no conception of um, of a perfect society, right? Because the radicals just want to tear down what exists, and the conservatives, I'm talking about small C, philosophical conservatives, and the conservatives just want to sustain what exists. And everybody else has these theories about what society should look like. But the, the, the reason I ask is, so I have, I guess I, uh, three, I have three buckets of how I try to understand where these people are coming other than, you know, righteous indignation and all that kind of stuff. And so like one is the one you're talking about, which I think explains a lot of these people. And, I, and it could be mix and match, but I just want to know where you come down. So one is just uh, extended adolescence. Yes. Right. It's fun to smash shit. It just is, oh, right? And oh, uh, yes. Let me tell you, there's a lot of energy in those streets for sure. Yeah. 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 And, um, and then two is which is related to adolescence. It's, just, it's a feature of being young, of wanting to be part of some historic, heroic narrative, right? We are part of something. We are moving forward, all that kind of And then the third one is, um, and this is more a critique of a certain brand of, of leftism. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time on this podcast doing critiques of rightism, so don't get me wrong, but like, um, which is self-hatred projected outward 
there's something about me that I, I cannot stand. I feel guilty about my racist feelings. So I'm going to assume since I'm such a great person, those other people are much more racist than I, and I'm going to atone by this, that, or the other thing, or I feel like a failure. I hate myself for it, but I hate the system more for making me feel like a failure, that kind of. I think that's right. I, I, there's probably some of the, of the former, but I think it is a, it's a, it's a, it's it's a frustration with one's own impotency, right? I can't get things done maybe because whatever, I'm smoking too much pot or I just haven't like made a commitment or whatever. You know, when you have like things that you really need to do, a job, a kid, a mortgage, like, and I'm not saying there weren't some of those people out there marching, that's fine. But a lot of them are just like bored, underemployed. Obviously the pandemic contributed to that. And this was a way to, um, to kind of try to work that out, right? Like literally, as I called it once, the, the, the nightly spurt of relief and release. Like you're out there doing something with your people and, and maybe I'm going to feel better. I don't think it does make them feel better. I think it makes them feel better in the act. But in the morning, you wake up and you're still kind of empty. And not only that, but now the streets are full of ashes. It's like, how is this better? That's funny. It's a, my wife's from Fairbanks, Alaska. And um, I go up there more than most people go to Fairbanks. More, more than most pseudo-intellectual demi-Jews from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I go up to Alaska. Um, and uh, <laughs> yes, I, 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 I've made very few records for an Upper West Sider, but uh, this is one I think I hold. Um, take that, John Pedorts. And, um, uh, and I was there during a cold snap, which means something. Right. I was there in a February. Um, cold as it got while I was up there was 51 below zero. And that's not wind chill. That's just straight ambient temperature. Right. And uh, it was during the Occupy Wall Street stuff. And we're driving through downtown for like the hour and a half of, of actual daylight that you get. And I'm like, what, what the hell is that? I see this thing in front of like the city hall or whatever. And it was like six guys in a yurt or an igloo, whatever, um, having a Occupy Wall Street protest vigil uh, thing outside of City Hall. And I always think about these guys. I mean, God bless them. But like the idea that the people at Goldman Sachs <laughs> were like, oh, man, Tom, have you heard? <laughs> there are these guys in 40 below zero weather protesting in Fairbanks, Alaska, our deals. Um, like it was so, (laughs) so (laughs) entirely performative, utterly idealistic and pointless. And it can only, my point is, is that if you have any critical faculties, you know, you're not accomplishing anything except the things you're about, the feelings you're having about yourself and the kind of person you are. And so much of this Antifa stuff during the Trump protest things, and I, I think I take a backseat to no sane person in my criticisms of Donald Trump. Um, but uh, um, the, I, the idea that it didn't dawn on any of them, that destroying downtown Portland was just simply great for Donald Trump in every conceivable way. It just, it shows you the child, whatever the motivations are, the childishness of it, the self-defeating childishness of it was just so unbelievably transparent. And yet, if you pointed it out to people, they're like, well, you just don't get it. And it's no, I think I do get it. I think you don't get it. I think I put in, I don't know, I think it might have been the recent piece about Rachel Abraham that, you know, complain as much as they do. Trump sending in forces was just their absolute wet dream. They had been already, well, first of all, they'd been marching since 2015. I mean, and then when he was elected, they marched, they marched so long, Jonah, that the local paper started a protest and march section, like where the movies and the plays right? So that you knew where to go. Um, And then, you know, it was the pandemic and George Floyd. And, you know, actually the George Floyd protests were peaceful for exactly a day and a half. And then on the second day, a bunch of about a hundred of them went into the uh, police station, which is called Justice Center, which is right next door to the federal building and just trashed it. I wrote an article about a woman who works with the police who was in the basement checking in prisoners with her family, calling her and going, get out, get out, your building's on fire. Okay. Um, And they just kept it up. And then Trump said in federal forces, Jonah, they were so energized, so energized. 
and kept that energy up through the election. I had many people say to me, well, hey, Nancy, you know, when Biden's elected, it's going to chill out, right? I'm like, are you high? Do you know what these people are getting out of this? They don't care who's elected. And I sure is shite that I was out on the streets with them when they just broke everything to bits the day after he was elected. But that's, it's sort of a Baptist, Baptist and bootleggers kind of thing, right? I mean, like Trump loved being able to talk about Antifa and Antifa loved being designated the enemy of Trump and everyone else kind of lost, you know, like the, the immigrant dry cleaner, you know, the Korean dry cleaner in, in downtown Portland or the Mexican, you know, restaurant owner. They're the ones who get screwed by two groups of white privileged people screaming at each other. I wrote a piece. Um, there was a the, the Antifa. They, they kept setting fire to this one police union hall. And one night the police chased them and they went through this little business district and they set it on. The business district was literally just trying to survive during the pandemic. And they built this whole like outdoor area where people could, you know, maybe sit with their kids and have a muffin. And they went through and they set it on fire. And then they did it again the next night. And it was, it was a pretty black neighborhood. And I went and I, I talked to a lot of people and they're just like, I had to stand outside of my, my business with my son and say, can you please not keep destroying our businesses. This is one of the one times I got my longest interview with an Antifa gal who worked as a dog walker in her other life and also like for like a sewing outfit or something. But at night she would go and she was also quite prim, like very prim, nice girl, lived in a nice apartment building. We sat on her patio and talked. And she said, you know, Nancy, I understand. I understand, you know, this person's position, the black business owners and everything's been set on fire and destroyed. But, you know, we're fighting for something bigger. You're like, oh, okay, so, all right. How do you, how do you, how do you get someone to budge from there when, and it doesn't matter what the person's business that you've destroyed is because they're fighting for something larger. When you're, you're saying you're fighting for them. Right, right. Um, got to, bur- yeah, yeah, you got to bomb the village to save it. Um, yeah, I, look, I, I just, I have such contempt for all of that. I have no problem with very serious left-wing people. They're very interesting to talk to when they're serious people. Yes, agree. Totally agree. I've t- spoken to some real, like I had a, for a while, for about a year, a back and forth with like a real anarchist. And like someone like who studied and written like serious papers. I disagree with just about everything that he says, but he actually could explain to you what he thought he was doing here. That has nothing to do with practically anybody we saw on the ground in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, since you're so how long have you been back in New York? I came in summer 2019, but, um, I was still at a house there. We were selling a house and I went back to report. So I'm back in Portland all the time. It's the story that just keeps on giving, you know? Yeah, no, look, I, 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 I that's obviously true. And I, I'm kind of fascinated by it. I mean, like, um, and again, the reason I was so shocked was I had been to Seattle a couple times during COVID and COVID, I mean, like kind of, you know, it's, it's, are, are you watching the HBO show The Last of Us? I have watched two episodes of it. Okay. Okay. So it's, um, uh, it's forget The Last of Us. It, Seattle during the pandemic, it kind of had that sort of, it's not quite the zombie apocalypse yet, but a lot of people have loaded up their cars and left feel, you know, and the people left behind are making do. Um, and the last time I had been in Portland was pre pandemic. And, um, and I was just shocked at how much worse it was. Um, but uh, I go back to New York a lot. I'm from there, you know, and um, um, and I kind of get the feel like New York is at some kind of inflection point where it could be getting better or could be getting worse. I mean, um, it's very hard for me to tell when I just parachute in and parachute out rather than actually live there the way I used to. Um, what is your sense of how New York is doing since you've had time to be away and come back and, and all the rest? So when I, when it, during the pandemic, I was actually in Portland for a while and I came back in May, 2020, I live in Chinatown, I have my car in the city at that point. And I drove up, um, I drove up sixth Avenue all the way to 57th street and then came down, um, seventh or however I did it. I didn't hear one car honk, not one and there were I, there was nobody in the streets, and it was such a surreal experience. It didn't even look like New York City, and I'm from New York City. I was like, "Am I like in Pittsburgh or Schenectady?" It just looked different. 
However, I also, I live in an area called Dime Square in, in NYC in Chinatown. It is so thriving. It never shut down during the pandemic. It's full of young people building things. I think New York is going to be fine now. New York has a lot of problems. The subway is just, it's just like the devil's armpit. It's just, it's beyond disgusting. And we got a lot of policies that need to change, but I think New York City just has enough oomph, always has enough gas in the tank. People want to come that it is going to be fine. But you know, again, I'm, my middle name is Pollyanna. Um, Portland, I think Portland's going to just sort of, when, when you're talking about the zombie apocalypse, Portland in summer 2021, I went out there for um, for the dispatch, I think, and did an article about the business districts and what had happened. It was unbelievable. There was nobody downtown except like these poor shelled out people, um, you know, addicts and I don't know, hobos, whatever you want to call it. Just like it was really, really bad. It's it's come back a bit, but um, it's going to definitely have a harder a harder road than New York until, as I said before, you get some people that are kind of like just apolitical about all this stuff. They're just like, you know what? I'm going to go build some stuff, right? And maybe I've got an interesting template to do it in. And I bet you the Portland Business Association or whatever supports it will be happy to have bodies get in there and start to build some new stuff. Yeah, I just, I I, I do think though, you, if you, put it this way. I mean, I agree with like young 20-somethings with, who, who can afford to be entrepreneurial with their time. They can work around a lot of this stuff. But if you're a business owner or a would-be business owner, you want to start a, a restaurant or whatever, the idea that you're going to, and you have choices between someplace in the suburbs around Portland or downtown Portland, as long as there are, I mean, it's hard to explain to people. I, like when I wrote that piece, I expected to get all sorts of backlash about, oh, you didn't really visit Portland. Eh. Or like people who, when I say I don't love Atlanta, they say, well, did you go to Buckhead? I was like, you're making my point. Like if you're talking about this other place. Um, and uh, instead, I just got inundated with an email from people saying, you know, you didn't really do it justice. It's so much worse. Or, oh, I, you know, one guy in the comments, one guy in the comments said, Oh, I hadn't been to downtown Portland in so long. And um, so I, I, I decided I was going to test this, you know, whether, whether Jonah was right. And he drove into downtown Portland and just drove around. And uh, at 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning, it was 9 to 1, something like that, homeless people to, you know, non-homeless people. And the, the, the D.C. has a huge homeless problem. New York still has a huge homeless problem. But the tents in the middle of the blocks is just so different. And the, the sort of attitude that like you're in, you're the intruder in their sort of gypsy camp in the middle of a business street is so palpable in some parts that I don't know why if, if you know, with your scarce dollars, you're going to start a business there rather than someplace else where you get sort of middle-class families, you know, going to, a, going to the PF Changs and then coming next door to whatever. I mean, it's just like some of that has to be fixed at some point if you're going to get a real comeback for Portland. You're absolutely right about that. Like, do I want to go to Pittsburgh or do I want to go to Portland? <clears throat> Maybe I don't want to deal with all the like whatever that might be happening in Portland. Also, Portland, when we're talking about adolescent campaigns, I mean, better than just about any place in the country was super great at denouncing everybody. I'm going to denounce you because you're you're not Thai and you're making Thai food. I'm going to denounce you because I think you should be doing something else and you're not. You're not supportive enough to X or Y community. Um, and that really got a lot of traction in Portland. So you're really kind of like fighting two battles. Is this where I want to go? Do I want to subject myself to this? Um, that said, uh, and, and I think Portland is singing a di different siren song than it was 10 or 15 years ago. That said, you've got some pretty brave people. It's a great bread basket. Man, they, you spit out a watermelon seed and next year you come back and you've got a whole thing. So it's got some pretty interesting um, physical properties that might still be interesting to people. We'll see. Yeah, no, the, the bones are great. I mean, it's still a pretty city. Um, and, you know, uh, and the whole area, I mean, the Pacific Northwest is great. I love the Pacific Northwest. And, um, uh, but like, I guess I, I just keep coming back to the fact that I hate having to make progressive arguments for progressives, but like 
there is nothing in liberalism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, leftism, that says it is a violation of your morals or your principles to make people feel safe, right? I mean, getting back to your story about, about Rachel, there is nothing in any form of liberal philosophy or left-wing philosophy or, or, Marx, or even Marxism, right? There's nothing in progressivism that says society doesn't have an obligation to uh, punish people or simply remove from, from society people um, who step on the throats of women. I mean, that's just, it's like, this is like, you could be as liberal as Elizabeth Warren and you're still supposed to believe that violence against women, just violence in general, you know, is wrong. And that the state, it is, you know, going back to like Max Weber, you know, the state is supposed to have this monopoly on violence. The state has the authority and the obligation to keep people safe. And the idea that somehow your self-expression rights are more for some creepy dude in a park are more important than the rights of hundreds of families to feel safe and to feel safe letting their kids run around. The idea that there's no political incentive for a Democrat to come around and start saying that stuff is just so otherworldly to me. But it it seems to be the case in lots of places. There's the woman that I um, interviewed in my piece. She she basically talked about how you know, Portland wants to say it's so progressive when in fact it's regressive. And she quoted um, what she said was a Talmudic saying, which was kindness to the cruel leads to cruelness to the kind. And I think we see that exactly with Rachel Abraham. However, Portland, in my estimation, is not yet ready to say we have to stop extending kindness to um people that we may have felt we should be kind to because they've had a bad shake in the past. Um, I don't think it's ready to do that yet. I mean, clearly it's not. Clearly it's not if Rachel Abraham is dead, right? On that cheery note, (laughs) (laughs) Nancy Rommelman, thank you so much for for coming on. I really appreciate it. Janet, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it too. I want to tell people your your Twitter handle is at Nancy Rom with two M's. So not like the the comic book alien, but uh, um, uh, but uh, just an extra M for meaning, whatever. Um, and hope to have you back. Okay, thanks, Jenna. All right, so uh, Nancy Romman has left the uh, studio, and um, I'm sorry to end things on such a dour, depressing note. Um. And, uh, um, I was really kind of hoping that we would have the, that she would have bought more into my theory that things, my optimistic theory that a progressive tyrant who will impose order order with a velvet fist on all of these, uh, uh, crapulent cities, um, would, uh, uh, would be in the coming down the pipeline, but she doesn't see it and she knows the place better than I do. So, so there you have it. Um, and, uh, what else do I have to tell you people? I don't really have much else to tell you people. I, I, I would really like to do a um, The Last of Us catch up for people, but I know that some people haven't seen it yet because I have, I have thoughts um, about the Ron Swanson episode, for those of you who've seen it, but uh, we, we will wait. We'll wait um, a little while longer. Um, oh, there's a, new, uh, uh, there's a new episode of Glop with John Pedoritz and Rob Long and I where we probably talk about male nudity more than any other glop podcast in, uh, in recent memory. And, and don't worry, we don't talk about our own just in case those images were going through your minds. Uh, but you should check it out. And, um, and we'll put up as much of all that stuff in the show notes, including the piece I wrote about being out in Portland. Um, uh, so check those out and uh, become a dispatch subscriber. Oh, that's something. Uh, the the Dispatch Politics newsletter has um, been released into the wild. Uh, Andrew Egger, Dave Drucker, the rest of our crack team. It's w- wildly uh, comprehensive and um, deeply reported. And it's going to start two days a week. And then as we get closer to um, the full swing of the political season, it will hopefully move to daily. Um, 
I'll just be upfront. One of the things we're trying to do is sort of compete with some of these other sort of must-read political um, uh, products out there, political newsletter products out there, and we want to do it better and in dispatchian style. So if you're interested, sign up for it um, at thedispatch.com. And that's it. Until I see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.